0: Good to have all of you here. Glad for any who might be joining us with the uh, service on the internet, or either now or later. The beautiful thing about our our system is that you can tune in at any point and uh, see our speakers. And in many cases, when we're we're diligent, we get our notes online. So my notes for this uh, Sunday School series we're going to begin today are available on our church website under View Our Documents. And under my name, Don Hewitt, you'll find... Uh, This one, Understanding the Gospel of John, which is going to be the series we're going into now. So it's available for those who might want it, and uh, let's open in a word of prayer today, shall we? Father, once again, we're thankful for the unique privilege we have of coming to the book, of coming to the source of truth we know that doesn't change, that hasn't uh, had five different opinions in one year and changed the next year. And it hasn't contradicted itself. There's so many things that men come up with in science that one idea will contradict another, and then another idea will have to come along to try and straighten that out. And they'll always have to try and figure out a way to harmonize their opinions. And yet man never has been able to about many things in life. But we're thankful, Father, when we come to the book. We don't have to take anything other than literal. We can let the book say what it says and simply present that. And then we know, Father, we have the truth. We have something that hasn't changed. We're so thankful for that. That It is an absolute in a world which uh, thinks that change is, is inevitable and changes everything. We're thankful that isn't true. That We're thankful there are some things that haven't changed, and some of them are found right in this book. Bless in our time of study, and bless in the service that follows, we'd ask in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, we, uh, our, the overall Sunday School series that I started uh, September, two, let's see, two years ago already. Wow, where's the time gone? Uh, I've, the series I've started, I've called Problems We Don't Have When We Take Scripture Literally. And if there's one thing that I have noticed, that most of the problems in Scripture that people have, believers that will raise questions come from two different sources. One is they don't take things literally, and the other thing the other is they don't keep things in context. And, and the majority of the questions that, that I've been asked over the years, and I think Pastor will agree with that, are usually answered by looking back in context. And I think Courtney's seen that, and, and Scott has too. If you just go back in context, you'll generally find the answer to, to some of the things. And if you take it literally, you'll find the answer to more things. And so we come down to the only real problem we have sometimes is that just we are not able to understand because of our limits limitations as humans especially when it comes to things about God himself and his personality what he's like what the persons of the Godhead are like sometimes we just can't grasp it's just too difficult for us because it's unlike anything we've seen or know well in our ongoing series of problems we don't have when we take scripture literally we're going to turn now to the gospel of John now, we have been there in our last mini-series on the first century church as we went into what happened to the first century church, and John's writings tell us exactly the things that happened to it and why. But we want to go a little bit deeper into the Gospel of John and see what it's about. Now, it's a commonly held belief that the Gospel of John is written as what we would call today a gospel track, something to bring people to salvation, initial salvation. And as one writer puts it, this is, this is, this is a really nice, elegant, eloquent statement of what is traditionally held. So let me read this for you. Why, why did he write it? Talking about the Gospel of John. The best place to start is with his own purpose in John 20, verses 30 and 31. But these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John selected several, several startling signs uh, of, of Jesus and at parenthesis 7, I believe, see my BBR article cited below, to convince his readers that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah, or, parenthesis, or as D.A. Carlson has it, the Messiah was, in fact, Jesus. His purpose was to introduce his readers, in quotation marks, or those, who came, who, those with whom his readers came in contact, to believe in Jesus and have life in him. Now, we believe the traditional view takes into account several key factors that will show that the Gospel of John is not at all a gospel tract in any sense of the word. Um, uh-oh, I hear some of my, my fans coming in there. Oh, my goodness. Um, stu- this study intends to show clear evidence that the Gospel of John was written near the end of the first century to emphasize the deity of Christ to the Christian, to the church. Now, we know it was written close to the end of the first century, and there's, we have a footnote down at the bottom you can see. We can go and it discusses some of the reasons why, but there's little doubt that John wrote very late and that he wrote, and his, what he was writing, of course, was in terms of what he could see in the church itself at that time. So if you want to know what the first church was like, You'll see evidence of it in the Gospel of John and Revelation and in 1 John in particular. You'll see things that pertain to what the early church was like as we came to the end of the first century. So, but this study, and, and this is going to be the point of our study throughout, is we want to show you clearly that the Gospel of John was written at the end of the first century to show, to emphasize to Christians the deity of Christ. Now you might think that's kind of, kind of strange. Well, why would we have to do that? Well, you know, I'll give you a simple, simple challenge. Listen to contemporary Christian music and tell me if people understand, at least the writers of those songs, if they understand who Jesus Christ really is. Listen to the song and see, do they really see him as full deity or do they see him as a do-gooder, as a man, as someone who is just like us and nothing more? Maybe just a little sprinkle of pixie dust or something on there to make him a little bit better, you know. Maybe he wears better, better shirts than I do. I don't know. But nonetheless, I don't think you'll see evidence in modern Christendom. If the songs are any indication, and if, this, and if some of the preaching that I've listened to on the radio, and I don't listen to much, Pastor, I, 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 I don't know about you, but I lose my sanctification in a big <laughs> hurry if I listen to too much, because I don't like it when they start. I heard that gospel song this morning, uh, The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? You know, time after time, he's waited before. And I said to, I said to my wife, I said, it's just plain blasphemy. He's waiting on us to make the decision. Ah oh, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Now, why do we say that the Gospel of John is for believers, not unbelievers? We're we'll right on our notes on page one. Well, let's go to the most simple passage of all. Let's look over 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 again. Now I hope you all know this by heart, and most of you probably do. But, for purposes of our study, we want to emphasize this. So we read in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, some of the most important verses written concerning the Scripture itself. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, please note, the Scripture has several unique qualities to it. One of which is, it's God-breathed. Now, I, I know that you see is given by, and given by is not even in uh, italics. But really, if you look at a Greek text or interlinear, you'll see that what you have there is a noun. It's not a verb. It's not saying how, it's not giving you an action. It's not saying being breathed out. It's talking about a quality, being God-breathed. It's a unique word that Paul put together of breathe and God, put God-breathed together. He's not talking about how Scripture came. He's talking about an inherent quality of Scripture. It's God-breathed. It's like God exhaled and those words just appeared on a page. It's about that certain. Now, to our knowledge, I don't think any other religious writing makes any such of a claim to be God-breathed. I don't even think the Koran suggests that. And the Koran is pretty bold and and aggressive in the things it says but I don't think it claims to be breathed out by God nor does any other religious writing now you'll notice there are four qualities that we're not going to talk about but you can see scripture has four unique functions but the but it's only intended for one thing Now here's what scripture is for that the man of God now that's a generic term I know people today are feminists out there and are, are liberal shall we say loonies to be polite our concern, huh, what's that nuts. Uh, Yeah, thank, thank you, thank you. Brother, Brother Rick provided the word nuts, so I didn't have to say it. But they, will, they get all excited about the fact that there are masculines in here. Now, it's a generic, for, I don't know why it's a problem today, but for years and years when we talked about saying the man of God, we, we, don't, we all pretty much understood that that included all people. It was a generic term, man or mankind included ladies too. There wouldn't be any mankind if there weren't ladies out there. i got a big headline for those people out there. So it's for the man, the person of God. In other words, it's for the believer to bring the believer to maturity, to be perfect, mature, thoroughly furnished to good works. So in other words, the scripture is written for whom? The Christian. Now what seems to be puzzling to me at this point is that if most scholars will agree to this, that the Bible is written for the man of God, then why would they take one entire book and say, well, this is written for the unbeliever? Huh? Now, how does that fit together? Stop and think about it. Is there any logic to that? Will the unbeliever get a whole book of Bible? Well, if you look at page two, I can tell you that there are a number of doctrines in Scripture that the unsaved will not understand, and some of them they flat out will not like. Now, the first one on the list is John's gospel includes several passages which teach eternal security. Now that doesn't mean anything to an unbeliever. They're not even saved. They don't even know what salvation's about. Why would they care about this thing called eternal security? By the way, can I stop before we look at those passages and say something? I don't see eternal security as a doctrine taught in Scripture specifically as a doctrine. I see it as simply a something that is inherent in many, many, many passages of Scripture. You don't have to have it as a separate doctrine. It's inherent all over the place. Let me give you one example. It's not in your notes, so this, this, I, can't, I can't charge you for this one, Courtney. This is, on, this is on us. But if you look at Philippians chapter 1, you'll see what I'm getting at. Inherent in the scripture itself, over and over and over, you will find reasons to say the believer has security. You don't have to have a separate doctrine, it's just part of much of scripture. My word, it's just all over the place. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Now, Paul says in verse 5, in verse 4, he's thankful for these believers for their fellowship. In verse 5, and why? verse 6 of Philippians 1, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it, not may, not could, not should, it says he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean? If he started it, he will finish it. Okay, well then, how could it be interrupted? How could, are you going to say that I can come along and God said he's going to finish? I say, oh no. I'm going to be carnal so you can finish it. I'm going to take myself out of your hand. Are you serious? You see what I'm saying? You don't have to have a separate doctrine of eternal security. You can simply read passages of Scripture and see it's inherent in the Word of God itself. Over and over again it occurs. Now you'll find that in the Gospel of John. If you look at John chapter 6, verse 37, there's two verses in John 6 and one in John 10. We're not going to belabor this point because I think many of you know this. I hope most of you know it. In John chapter 6, if you look at John 6, verse 37. Now, this is a remarkable passage. Pastors touched on this before, and and I love the sixth chapter because he just, this goes to show you that in God's program, he wasn't looking for numbers. John 6 is a process of weeding out And by the end of the 6th chapter, all of the chaff and all of the garbage was weeded out. And it was done deliberately. Christ said things in a way that was guaranteed to offend these unbelievers and drive them away. But in John 6, verse 37, look what he says. All that the Father gives me will come unto me. And him that comes unto me I will in no wise cast out. How much more emphatic can you get? In no wise I will cast out those that come to me. Does that sound like security to you? Now, what would that mean to an unsaved person if they read this passage? What does that mean, coming to him? You know, a wise castor. Well, why would he cast me out? I'm such a great person, you know. I mean, you get all kinds of reactions, but I don't think you get anybody to appreciate the uniqueness of what this says. Then looking down in verse, verse 40 of John 6, just a couple verses down. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, They may have eternal life. That was looking forward, anticipating what would be true on the day of Pentecost. But it says, I'm going to raise him up on the last day. Now, wait a minute. Isn't there a chance that I can get lost in here? Do you see any place that you can say in this that I could get lost? I could lose myself? I don't think so. Look over at John chapter 10. There's two verses here. And these, there's more than this in John. These are the ones that I think are what I would call maybe flagrant isn't the right term. But it certainly, it certainly stands out. You can't miss these. You'd have to be, well, as, as a friend of mine used to say, I think Stevie Wonder could see these. <laughs> and you know about him. Or Ray Charles. That was the other one, too. Even Ray Charles could see this. And John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither shall any one now you notice man's italicized, any one, because I'm thinking in terms of who would want to do that, and the most likely candidate would be Satan. Any one shall pluck them out of my hand, my father, verse 29. Who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, verse 30 says something interesting, and I just want to, want to mention this, because this is a little bit more emphatic than it, than it reads in English. It says, I and my Father. It's I and the Father, and that "r" is a first-person plural. I would translate verse 30. I and the Father, we are one thing. We are one thing together. There's the unity. There's the unity in the essence. We are one essence. Very emphatic about his deity at this point. But you'll notice, no one, I am giving them eternal life, verse 28, no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, I, I guess I read and I heard in Bible colleges someone said there was a Bible teacher that didn't believe in security that said, well, no one can pluck them out, but I can get myself out. Oh, are you kidding me? If it says no one is able to do it, then how is it that I'm able to crawl out or slither through his fingers, you know? I marvel at what people, it it all comes down to a simple fact. So much of what you hear, and be careful, you will see Bible teachers who will come up with some weird doctrines and you have to stop and say, no, wait a minute. The only way you could come up with that interpretation is if you started off and you wanted to believe this and so you had to make the scripture fit what you wanted it to fit. And I despise that. I loathe that. That's dishonest. That's dishonest. If the Bible says something that I don't like, you know what? I swallow my pride and I say I'm wrong. Scripture's right, and I change what I believe. God help us to all be that way. You know, and I'm not saying I'm unique in that sense. I know, pastor, I know, I know, all of you men that teach feel pretty much the same way. If Scripture says something, even if I don't necessarily like it, I'm going to change what I believe because I know who's wrong. It's me, not God. So you'll notice that then we have. Here's another one. Number two. John teaches that Jesus will be the judge of mankind. Now, you won't find this so, so well stated any place else in the New Testament. Look over John chapter 5. In John 5, this is a passage of Scripture that at some point I hope to spend a little time with. Because I've done some work in the Gospel of John, and I'm just amazed at how much is here. I'm amazed at how much about the deity of Christ. This is a, this is a book that's written about the deity of Christ. And it's for our benefit. It's just loaded with things. Now, in verse 22... Will an unsafe person be interested in this? For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which sent him. That must have really hit those Pharisees and those Jewish leaders right between the running lights, because they didn't honor him, but they claimed to honor God. But now ask yourself a simple question. If an unsafe person reads this, do you think they're going to be really excited and interested and want to know, do you think they'll believe this necessarily or want to hear it? You know, I've got the suspicion that because so many unsaved people want to think that death is the end of everything, if they read this and they're forced to face the fact that, no, number one, death doesn't end at all, and number two, they are going to be judged, and number three, it's going to be by the Son of God, I don't think they're going to like it. I don't think it's going to help them. I don't think it's going to make them come to Christ. You know, we preach the wrong things to people. You preach the wrath of God. And you know what the unsaved person is going to do? Not me. not me. I'm not giving up to him. You're perfect. Let's. Here's another one. Uh, boy, Courtney, you're getting another freebie here. I can't charge you for this. But look over at Revelation 6. You know, people, our, our friends over the, throughout the history have thought that if you preach the wrath of God, how angry God is at people. They're going to say, oh my goodness, I've defended the wrong person. I better make things right with him. Is that really true? Well, here's a place where you think that it would be true, but it isn't. This will show you. Let's see. Uh, verse, Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Now, this is when things begin to heat up in the tribulation. And boy, they're really going to get hot. Global warming, and Al Gore will be, if Al Gore's still alive, he'll say, I was right. See, I was right. Well... <laughs> I don't think he'll be saying that if he's still here. I think he'll be hiding. And look at what it says in verse 16. And then said to the rocks and mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him him that sits on the throne, and from the what? The wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That says, "Fall, fall on us and hide us. Does this say we're turning to God? If you're hiding from God, it doesn't look like you're turning to him, does it? It looks like you're trying to hide. So if you preach the wrath of God today, it's not going to work, guys. It's not going to work. And yet there are some who still persist in believing that the wrath of God will scare people into believing. No, you know, Revel- Romans chapter 2 is still there. It's the, it's the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that brings people to Christ. Why should God do anything for an old scoundrel like myself? I, can, I, I know you folks aren't that way, but I can say this guy's a scoundrel. Why would God do anything for this scoundrel here? Why would he be so kind as to provide? I still, to this day, do not understand why God would love me, why he would save me. If there's anything unfair about election, it's, it's unfair that I don't get what I had coming. So if anybody ever says election's not fair, I say, yeah, you're right. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve it. That's my answer to them. So, the Gospel of John teaches that he will be the judge and i am very sure that there's going to be a lot of unbelievers if you tell them that they're not going to want to hear that they're judged at all and the name of jesus christ is some name that just doesn't stick well with a lot of unsaved people so if we give them this and tell them they need to read this and believe this i think we're making a mistake i don't think it's going to work it's not intended to now number three John's gospel teaches that Jesus will raise the dead. Now, if you're still in John chapter five, just back up one verse to verse twenty-one. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son will quicken whom He will. And then it goes on and says He's going to uh, raise judge all. He's going to raise all men so He can judge them. Now, unsaved people, many of them, would love to believe nothing more than the fact that death is the end of everything. You know, there's a lot of people that are doing a lot of rotten things. Some of these people, these big names that are pulling the strings of our society and they're ruining this world system, they're ruining our country. I'll bet there's a lot of them who think that death is the end of everything. They would like to believe that. I don't think you're going to win too many friends by saying, Nope, you're going to be resurrected. You're going to face judgment. Revelation chapter 20 is still true. You read Revelation 20 verses 11 through 14 to any unsaved person. Try reading them that. If you want to shake them up and, show, and really show them about being judged, take them to Revelation chapter 20 and see how much they appreciate that. They're not going to like it. They are not going to like it. Not until you're saved. Now, once you're saved, you can look at that passage and say, Boy, am I glad I'm not there. I wouldn't want to be there. I, uh. How many of you would like to be judged for what you've done prior to salvation or your sins today? I don't think I'll ever see a hand raised on that question. That's one, Pastor, you can be guaranteed if you ask. You'll never see anybody raise their hand. If you do, watch out. <laughs> so, now the seven signs that, that John records, and there are seven signs in his gospel, I don't see how they would be particularly important to an unsaved person, even if they believed in deity. What would that tell an unsaved person? Jesus can do this, he can do this, he can do this, he can do this. Okay, so what, what does that mean? An unsaved person wouldn't see the point of it. Even if they happen to say, well, yeah, okay, Jesus is God, yeah, yeah. What would that mean to them? Would it mean anything? I doubt that it would. You see what I'm getting at. It's just not going to do it. Now, one other thing. This one is one that I think I could get myself tarred and feathered for in some churches. But fortunately, I don't think we have any tar, do we, Pastor? So I don't have to worry. We may have feathers, but we don't have tar. The Gospel of John does not include the Gospel of Salvation. Now please remember, if you talk about the gospel, I, I'm, and my writings, if you've ever noticed, every time I mention gospel, ordinarily speaking, I will put 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 after it. Because I don't want anyone to ever mistake what the gospel is. The gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 and folks, make sure when you talk to people, you tell them, when you say if you talk to people about the gospel, make sure you tell them the gospel as in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, so that there's no doubt because people use the Romans road and people come to the ever-popular John 3.16. I'm sorry, but John 3.16 is not the gospel. Now you'll notice Scripture is clear about the message of salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now we're not going to read it because you folks know this when you've heard it enough at this church. And you'll notice that John does record the death of Jesus in John 19, and his burial, John 19, and his resurrection in John 20. But you'll notice, not as a single message and not for sin. You don't see it connected in there. You just simply see the facts that he was crucified, he was buried, he rose again. But you don't see the connection to sin. And despite Christian tradition, and it's Christian tradition, and that's all it is, John 3.16 is not the gospel, does not contain the gospel. Now, I've said in the past, and you can say to people, if you want to soothe their feelings a little bit, Christians, you can say, well, this can be a kind of an entree to the gospel. This can be kind of a lead into the gospel, but it's not the gospel. You could use it as an entree if you really, really wanted to, because that's really not dealing with the gospel at all. If you look at John 3.16, let's go back and look at it on the page, it always helps to look at things in context. Now, we mentioned at the outset that most of the problems we have in Scripture can be answered by taking the Bible literally or by keeping things in context. And here is the context issue. You'll notice it says, For, and John 3.16, For God so loved the world. Now, every word is important, and I believe every word is there for purpose. And this little word, and there's, I have a footnote, if you want to chase it down, you can see it. But uh, this little word is, is essentially a conjunction that introduces an explanation. That's out of a lexicon. I like the way that's put. That's put so nicely. It, in, in, in other words, it's, it's telling you, it's explaining something. So you would translate this because. Now, if you translated John 3.16, because God so loved the world, it would probably be, it would be more accurate And it would also cause people to stop and say, what do you mean because? Mm -hmm. Why are you saying because? It's explaining something. So the gospel is not telling you how to get saved. It's telling you something else. Look back at verses 14, 15. As Moses, verse 14 of John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so he's talking about eternal life. Because. So he must be explaining the last thing he said, which is eternal life, isn't it? I'm not making this up. Right, Pastor? I love Pastor's expression. I'm not making this up. It's right here. It says, because God so loved the world. Well, he's telling you, why did God give eternal life? Because he loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's talking about why God gave eternal life. It's not telling you how to get it. It's telling you why it's there. God loved the world in this way. It's so easy to see. And yet, I I tell you, we're bucking tradition, folks. If you said that to 10 Christians outside of the church, you'd probably have 10 of them disagree with you and probably 8 or 9 of them would get angry at you. Maybe all 10 would get angry at you. But, you know, am I making this up or does Scripture say this? I'm just appalled at the fact that there's such ignorance among the people of God and among the pulpits where men stand, where they just blindly take tradition and blindly accept what's there. God help us, Pastor, if we depend on commentaries. Courtney, Scott, don't depend on those commentaries. You know as well as I do, they don't do their own work. And in one of the, the forum papers, uh, conference papers I did, I, I put a note in there where I had, I had quotations from two individuals that were about 150 years apart, and they were word for word the same. And neither one gave the credit to each other. The, the, the later one didn't give credit to the first. The first one didn't tell you where he got it from, because he probably copied it. And that's called scholarship and, and commentary? Really? I can plagiarize, too, you know. Does that make me a scholar if I plagiarize That's one of the things that President Biden is known for, by the way, is plagiarizing. Does that make him a scholar? Uh, Stage five dementia is what it makes him. Well, anyway, so you can see John 3.16 doesn't provide you with the gospel. You You don't see anything about sin. You don't see anything about the death, the burial, or the resurrection. Now, you just see that God gave his son, and you could read into it, yeah. He gave him to go and do the work of the cross. But you've got to read all that in. You've got to understand that as a believer. An unbeliever is not going to do that. They're not going to see that. All they're going to see is God gave the son. Well, what did he give his son for? Well, to be an example. To be an example, show me what I should do. That's how they're going to take this. Believe me, that's how they take it. Now, to this we add one more thing. Romans 1.16 reminds us that God, the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Now, we don't, we don't need to look there. But I think you know it's for the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, not John 3.16, not an explanation of why we got eternal life, but 1 Corinthians through that is the power of God unto salvation. And you know, that's really the only part of Scripture that you can give an unsaved person that they're going to understand or appreciate is going to be John, or is going to be 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Because that addresses their need, that addresses their problems, and that's the only one that they can understand if the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. Because the Holy Spirit's convicting work is not to convict them of why Jesus came or why God the Father gave him or why eternal life is here. The Holy Spirit doesn't convict of that. He convicts of sin, righteousness and judgment. He convicts of things pertaining to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. So why would we expect unsaved people? But you see, the traditional view is to take this as a, the Gospel of John as a Gospel tract. And I I, I get frustrated. You know, I guess I, I fell in that camp for a long time too. I had to learn otherwise. So now that I see the difference, I guess maybe I want everyone else to. Now, the seven signs of, in, in the Gospel of John reveal for whom the Gospel was written. And these seven signs were on page two of our notes, are, are things that are contrary to what we call natural law. Now, you notice I put it in quote-unquote... Because when we say natural law, that's the way we normally see the universe operate. Normally we don't see water turning itself into wine. Normally someone can't say, take this to the governor of the feast and have it become something else. So what we call natural law is the way the universe normally runs things. But I have a big headline for people. God doesn't obey natural law if he doesn't wish to. He's the one that made it, and he's also the one who can alter it if he wishes to. And that's exactly what happened here. So these things, these supernatural abilities, now you'll notice we have them listed here. We're not going to go through them all, but they're, John picks seven, and he does say in, in the last chapter that, that if all the things that Jesus did were recorded, all the books of the earth couldn't, fill it, couldn't hold it up. He could fill all the books on the earth, and the, and the earth couldn't hold all the books that could be written about what he did. So these seven signs he picked are just pretty much important signs. And I think of the ones that are on there, uh, my, my favorite one probably for personal reasons tends to be number C, where he, the man that was an infant for 38 years, I think that's an interesting one because not only did he heal this man, but the man never thanked him, and the man went and turned him into to the, the Pharisees. He never thanked him and never gave many... And it's, you, you wonder, 38 years this guy's an invalid, and someone says, "You're healed. Take up your bed, go home." And you're not even going to thank him. You don't. I know he. I don't. I can't say that he did, but I sure don't see it in Scripture. I can't say that. I can't prove he didn't do it, but I can't prove that he did because it's not recorded. But what is recorded is that he went and he told the Pharisees because they criticized him for breaking their tradition. He carried his bed home on the Sabbath. Terrible thing to do. <laughs> has nothing to do with the law, with the Ten Commandments. When it says, you shall do no servile labor, it's talking about what you did for a living. It wasn't saying you couldn't do anything else. It was you didn't do what you did for a living on the, on the Sabbath. Well, I don't think that invalid carried his bad run for a living. <laughs> invalid moving in storage, huh? Yeah, I can see that. But so when you see those seven signs, now those signs wouldn't really matter too much, but would they matter to a believer? I would say the seven signs of deity, they put the full deity to the church. Now, we're going to, we'll probably get to this and, and we'll have to stop after this section. But I want you to see the early church struggled with recognizing the full deity of Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Now, this is not written late. This is written relatively early. John wrote late. And so when John talks about the deity of Christ indicating... The emphasis on indicates that it's there because, well, people didn't understand the deity or he wouldn't be pushing it so heavily. But it was also true early on, and I think the Colossians show it. Now, Paul had never been there, but these people still knew quite a bit. They were taught by Epaphras, I believe. And so he's going to tell them something very important you can see the evidence that they didn't understand who Jesus was. Now look at the beginning of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Speaking of Christ, it says, Who has delivered us from the power of darkness, and tra- the God, rather, the Father, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now it says, his, his dear Son in whom? In whom? It's talking about in Christ. So right off the bat, He's telling these 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 Colossian believers something about how important this one is. In whom we have forgiveness of in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So they automatically there's something unique about this one. This man, this Jesus Christ, had the power to forgive sins, and no one can do that but God. So you're starting to see an emphasis on deity right away. But then look what he goes on to say. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, every creation. Verse 15. So he is the image. He is exact representation, the image. And that's a word that means, well, it was used back in, uh, when Christ talked about paying taxes. He said, whose image is this on the coin? Well, that, the image on there looked like Caesar. It was an exact representation. Well, it wasn't perfect in every detail necessarily, but it was a representation. You could look at it and say, hey, that's Caesar. Well, when you looked at Jesus Christ, he is the image, the exact representation of what God is like. In appearance, not necessarily in appearance, but in person, in work. Ah, he was. He was absolutely that. We know that from the Gospel of John. We know that from other places. He is the exact image. You find that in Hebrews chapter 1, by the way. And that, that again, there you go, Courtney. There's another free one for you. I don't charge Courtney for things because he tries not to charge me for things. <laughs> <laughs> you get it, that's it. So you'll notice that, that he is an exact exact representation of the Father. Now you'll find that. Now you could put next to this, and I, and I should have put it in your notes, but right next to this you ought to pen in John one eighteen. When we say his exact image, John is going to tell you that in his introduction. And John's gospel, I love the John's gospel, for the introduction. I mean, that's one thing I wish every book of the Bible had was an introduction so concise that told you exactly what's going to be in it. But when you see John one you you'll see that when it said it's the exact representation of the Father, look what it says in John one eighteen: No man has seen God, that would be referring to the, to the Father, at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared, or it's the word, we get the word exegesis. In fact, it's transliterated into English as exegesis. He has thoroughly explained him. If you want to know what God is like, Jesus Christ thoroughly explained him. And you can see an awful lot of that in the Gospel of John. It tells you an awful lot, not only what Jesus Christ and his deity is like, but you'll see a lot of what God the Father is like. Because that's what it says here. He thoroughly explained deity. Deity. Now, if you want to know what deity is like, the Gospel of John's a place, but now stop and think for a moment. How much would an unsafe person be able to comprehend of this? If we as believers have trouble understanding some of this, and we have the potential to be illumined by the Holy Spirit, how much good is an unsafe person going to get? Are they even going to see the deity in here? I doubt that they're going to see a lot of this deity. You know they have an explanation. Uh, one of the explanations of the feeding of the five thousand, Doctor Schaefer you told us in seminar, and I still remember him saying it, and he was practically laughing as he said it, as he said that. Well, some of the liberals have explained as well. When Jesus started blessing that little boy's lunch, everybody got embarrassed and they got out their lunch they really had all along. <laughs> like, that's how they handle that. Do they see that this one supernaturally could take five little loaves of bread and a couple of fishes? No, no, no. They try to explain by saying, well, he embarrassed them so much they took out their lunches that they had. Uh Uh-huh, they had their take out there. And probably Uber came up and door-to-door brought them their stuff too. You never know. They did it by camel in those days, I guess. But so you see that in Colossians 1, you can see very clearly that what Paul is saying, he's saying it because they need to hear it. They don't understand this one. You notice it says he's... The image, now it says he's the firstborn. Now, I wish they wouldn't have translated it that way because that word that is there, and I didn't put the, the, the Strong's letter in for it, but if you check in your inner linear, if you have it, it's a word that can be translated the chief one. He's the chief one of all creation. He's not the firstborn of all creation. He's the chief one because he is the one that spoke everything into existence. He is the one that made this whole world system. He is the chief one. He is the chief one of all creation. The chief one of every creature, every creation. And sometimes when you see that word creature, you should check and make sure it's, oftentimes it's creation. It's not talking about a critter that gets down on all fours and scampers around like a dog. It can be talking about creation. A number of times it is. So you check your inner learning, you look at it. And some of your more modern translations, which is where the New King James is, is sometimes very helpful, And sometimes the English Standard Version of of 2001 and 2011 is pretty good, too, at picking up some of these things. But so he's the firstborn of every creation. He is the chief one. Then it goes on to explain, well, why is he the chief one? Well, look what it says in verse 16. For by him were how many things created? All things that are created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And then he even includes spirit beings in here. So I would dare say that if he's saying this to these people, they must not have understood this very well. They needed to hear this. Because remember, whenever Paul says something in his epistles, he's not just saying it because it sounds good. He's saying it because the Holy Spirit has directed him to say things that a group of individuals need to hear. So what did the Colossians need to understand? They didn't have a very good grasp of the deed of Christ. Now, let's not to be too hard on them. There's a lot of people today that are saved people that they don't recognize some of these things. That they don't recognize, well, if, if you have a believer today that doesn't understand or believe in eternal security, they don't understand their Savior very well, do they? I and my Father, we, we are one thing. They're in my Father's hand, they're also in my hand. The Father's begun, to, the Holy Spirit's begun, to, we're, we're going to perform it. All three of the persons that God had. So people today don't understand his deity very well either, do they? If they don't believe eternal security. It's a matter of maturity. Because like I said, keep that in mind. If you get one side lesson out of this, is remember that eternal security is not taught as a doctrine in Scripture. It's inherent in Scripture. Many, many, many places. Many places. You can find it all over. I can think of, off the top of my head, I can think of a half a dozen or more. And the top of my head's pretty flat and not much up there. (laughs) Fake hair mostly. So, you'll notice that, down, that he also says that he is before all things. And all, by him, all things consist. He holds everything together. Now, all things consist, what is he talking about? Well, you know, science says that, that the atoms are a funny thing. They should actually repel themselves. What holds them together? Why do they not just pull apart? Well, because it says somebody's holding them together, doesn't it? And in Second Peter 3, it tells you one day he's going to let them go. And boys, it's going to be a big bang. You talk about the big bang theory. That's going to be the real thing. (laughs) And then on top of all that, he says something else. And now, what he says in verse 18 tells me, once again, things are not just said haphazard. We don't see there a problem here, but you'll notice what he said. He is the head of the body who is the beginning, the, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Ooh, ouch, ouch, ouch! Because you know, you see a lot of guys, and there's a clip that Brother Rick sent me about this one fellow who had the preeminence in his ministry. That man that you sent me a clip, you sent me that clip about the man not to follow him. Which one? It was on, It was on. It was on YouTube. It was. It was Copeland with his jet. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. This man had all this money and all this wealth, and what had the preeminence in his life? Uh, I think he had a. The that he bought. I think he had we're some premise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think some of these men. Uh, one man, they have a. They, a friend of mine told me I didn't didn't check it out, but he had a, vid- a YouTube video put up. They were showing his library. Now wait a minute, Pastor, are you interested in some pastor's library? Does that impress you, about it? How about How about you, Scott? Courtney, is it, would that impress you to see somebody's library? Wouldn't impress me. No. You can have a whole lot of books. So what if I bought books? Maybe I didn't read half of them. <laughs> you, know, you buy books to impress people that you... <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> it, isn't <what> you, <laughs> it isn't the books on your shelf. It's what you do with them. So Christ is the head of the church, and he is the one that should be having the preeminence. Now, if that doesn't tell you who this was written to, and John, if John proves, talks about the deity, and you can see that the early church did not understand the deity of Christ very well, then, who is the Gospel of John written to? It's written to believers, because it's emphasizing over and over again the different things about his deity that Christians need to know. They need to know these things. And like, again, as I said early on, if you think that that's not a problem, just listen to some of the contemporary Christian music out there. When it comes to Christ, what do they portray in Christ? They don't portray one like this. They don't portray the head of the church. They don't portray the one who's above all things and everything is... On the top of page three. The last thing we need to say, and this, this is a killer. If nothing else, it, it, it convinced people that the early church had a problem with it. Look what it says here. For it pleased the Father... Now, it says for it pleased... Now, the Father's italicized, but there's no question it's Him. That in Him... Who, that in Him... Who... In Christ, should all fullness dwell. Now, the text is pretty specific. All the fullness, all the completeness permanently settles down in him. That word dwells is a word that means something where there's a permanent resident. It's a permanent residency. For example, and we don't have to look there, but if you want just one reference, you can see it in Matthew 2.23 where this word is used, where it says where Joseph, after he came back out of Egypt... After, after Herod was dead, he went and he dwelt in Nazareth. In other words, he went there and he settled down permanently. Because 30 years later, that's where Christ came from when he began his ministry. So this is a word to mean something that's permanently there. It's a permanent dweller. It's where you settle down and you feel at home. So it says all the fullness, everything that makes up deity, dwelt in Jesus Christ. Now how much stronger can you get Everything that made up, all the fullness, the fullness, everything that makes up. Fullness indicates everything that makes up something. It's all there in this one person. Now that tells me, that tells me that the early church definitely had a problem understanding the deity of Christ. And by the end of the first century, if they had a problem early on as things went on, I don't think things got better. In fact, I think according to what I see in First John and in Revelation chapter 2, I think they got a lot worse. And the deity of Christ was something that kind of wasn't emphasized very much and other things were emphasized. I kind of wonder about that today. Programs in the church, all kind of things to get people in, all kind of things to promote fellowship. That's okay in its place. But what about the fact that we need to emphasize who it is that's in charge of everything? Who it is that has all the fullness of deity? Who it is that's the preeminent one? Who is it that we should be worshiping and serving? Who is it that really matters? It isn't speakers up here in front of the church that matter. We'd like to think we do. Sometimes. Maybe we feel like maybe sometimes it'd be nice to matter. But what really matters is the Lord Jesus Christ. If he isn't first, then nothing else works. Nothing else really matters. So, Therefore, I think in the top of page 3, the gospel does not include the full deity of Christ. It's not necessary to prove that to the unbeliever. Not initially. They'll figure that out later. Because once they believe, then they'll find out it's a family truth. Because John 20, verses 31 and first, in Colossians 1, 13-19 show that early Christians struggled with grasping the full deity. Now, if we struggle grasping it, do you expect the unsaved person to up front right away grasp it the minute they hear the gospel? All they need to know is that someone paid for their sins, someone who was capable of doing it. They'll find out, they'll find out after they believe, if they do, they'll find out who this one was, if they're taught well. You'll find out it was none other than a person of deity that did this. So it's a family truth. You'll notice point D, and that's important. Understanding the full deity of Christ is a family truth. And if that's presented heavily in the Gospel of John, which it is, then that should tell you who the Gospel of John is for. So therefore, I would say, finally, and this is, we'll stop here, just above point number two, and next month we're going to come back to this. But we'll stop by saying this. The gospel of understanding the deity of Christ is a family truth, and it's, it's the point of John. Therefore, the gospel of John is for believers. It is not a gospel tract for unbelievers. And I, I know people will try to use it that way, and I'm, I'm sorry that they do, but that doesn't change the fact. Now, none of what we've made up, none of what we've said today is things we've made up. This is out of Scripture. And so the challenge is, if anybody that doesn't agree with some of these things, take it up with God. Don't take it up with me, or the pastor, or Courtney, or Scott. Because the scripture says it, not me. And my job is just to do that. And so this is why we say, this is part of that series, that problems we don't have when we take scripture literally. We don't have a problem understanding who this one is. If we take the word of God literally, we don't have to make up anything. Just believe what it says. The Gospel of John is about the deity of Christ. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Father, we are thankful. We're thankful that this book is so clear. We're thankful that in the Gospel of John we can see the full deity of Christ presented on behalf of the church. And we realize today when we look at contemporary Christianity that we see out there, we see that there is a great lack of knowledge, a great lack of consistency. On one hand, people will say that he is deity, that he is God, but yet the way he's treated and the way he's written in songs and sermons, that's not the way they see him at all. Father, may we never be guilty of seeing anyone as being more important than Christ, anyone having greater preeminence in the church than Jesus Christ, that his full deity really matters an awful lot, so much so that the Gospel of John is all about that. Bless now, Father, in the service that follows, and may these things be an encouragement we ask now in our Savior's name. Amen.